It looks like they're taking suitcases. <laughs> Not sure how long they're staying, but good luck. Well, if you are remaining in here, go ahead and have your Bibles turned to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. We are starting a brand new series today in the book of Galatians titled, No Other Gospel. As Christians, we believe that the Bible teaches that salvation is found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He said broad is the path that leads to destruction and narrow is the path to lead that leads to eternal life. Christianity is an exclusive religion. We are saved by the cross of Jesus Christ only. Now this, this is contrary to the very many other religions and belief systems that fill this world. The majority of people would say there are many, many, many roads that lead to, to God or to salvation or, or eternal life or whatever it is that they believe gives life meaning. For example, if, if God or, or, or whatever that meaning is, is on top of the mountain, they might say there are many paths to get to the top of the mountain. You can take the nice, long, scenic, slow, windy path. You could take the direct path right up the rock face or anything in between. But the good news is there are lots of paths. You choose what works for you. That would be the message of the world. And so for the next eight weeks, what we're going to do is walk through the book of Galatians and why see, according to God's word, salvation is found only in the cross of Jesus Christ, that there is only one path and it is Jesus. So for example, if you were to go to a, a jewelry store and uh, the jeweler was to take out a diamond, he would hold that up. And he would turn it in front of you, and so the light would pass through, and you would see all the beautiful facets of that diamond. That's what we're going to do over the next eight weeks. We're just going to be holding up the gospel, and as we look at it from different angles, we're just going to see the beauty of it. But there is at least one difference. When you hold up a diamond, you need an external light to shine through it. The gospel needs no external light, for it is the very glory of God, and it shines for us. So that's what I hope that you see and that we see together as we walk through the book of the Galatians, just the very beauty and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you are here and you've not yet believed in Christ, then I, I hope that in this series, you would, would truly understand and see the beauty and the magnificence of the gospel, and that you would trust in Christ. Now, if you're here and you say, well, I'm, I'm a new believer, I'm a seasoned believer, I think I have a good understanding of the gospel, then I want to remind you that the gospel is it's kind of like the ocean. Um, you can be a five-year-old, and you can wade out into the shore, uh, and you can play, and, and the gospel is like that. It's very simple and accessible. And yet also you can put scuba gear on and you can go hundreds of feet deep into the ocean discovering rich treasures and beauties in the ocean. And so no matter where you kind of classify yourself in the maturity of the gospel, we never outgrow the gospel. And so we will dig in, and I pray that as together, as a church, that we grow in our love, our understanding, our affection for God as we see the absolute beauty and glory of his gospel. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first five verses of Galatians. And the main point is, is that the gospel is the free gift of Jesus Christ who saves sinners for 
the glory of God. And so with that, I want to invite you to stand, and we are going to read the first five verses of this book. We stand each week. We do so as a means of honoring our God and Father who has given us this word and reminding ourselves that this word is inspired by God to equip us for every good work that he calls us to do. So let me read. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus Christ and we thank you for the book of Galatians. God, thank you for this word that you have given us that so clearly defines the gospel and shows that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. So Lord, as we dig into your word, as we study your word this morning, bring conviction of sin, that we would experience your forgiveness and your peace. Bring Bring to our attention anything that we are trusting in instead of Jesus or, or in addition to Jesus. By your word, open our eyes to the beauty of the gospel that comes by your grace in Christ. By your word, satisfy us with your peace. May our tongues be filled with joy and praise as we behold the display of your glory at the cross. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus in your name. Amen. You all may be seated. So as we begin, it's important that we, we understand, why are we in the book of Galatians? What is happening here? Who are these people? What is the occasion for Paul writing this letter? And so that's what I want to just address in the beginning. So who are these churches in Galatia? Well, if you remember, in Acts chapters 13 and 14, Paul begins to go on a missionary journey. And he takes Barnabas with him. And one of the first places they go is to the region of Galatia, where they go to churches like Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. There they they preach the gospel. They plant churches. Uh, So these are the churches that Paul is writing to. So you might say, "Well, well, why is he writing to them? What is the occasion? A problem has occurred. And, And it's important to realize that just about every New, uh, New Testament letter is addressing a problem within the churches. So, so remember this, there's no perfect church. There wasn't a perfect church 2,000 years ago planted by the Apostle Paul himself, and there's not one today. The church will always face problems either from within or from without. And here in Galatia, what we understand is that there is a false gospel that has begun to infiltrate these churches. There are people who are, who are called the Judaizers. These are people who are zealous about the Old Testament law. They believe they should keep the law. It is necessary. And so uh, they have come to these churches advocating for the adherence to the Old Testament law. And so if we were to describe the, the message of the Judaizers, it would be like this. Believe in Christ, obey the law, and you will be justified. Believe in Christ, 
Obey the law and you will be justified. So, so I have a chart up here. And so if you go to the next slide, it, it'll show. So this is the message that Paul gives. Can we read that? It's just small for me, I guess, on the TV. Okay, make sure. Okay, so this is Paul's message. Believe in Christ, you are justified, thus you do good works. Do you see the difference? According to the Judaizers, justification, being declared righteous by God, comes by Christ and human effort. But the gospel preached by Paul, what we would say is the true gospel, says justification is through Jesus Christ alone. Now, now you might wonder, is this a really big difference? Is it minor? Is it petty for us to, to, to point this out? I mean, the Judaizers are not even denying Jesus. They're not against people believing in Jesus. They're actually fine. Believe in Jesus. But you just need to do good works also in order to be justified. Listen, to, to add to the work of Jesus Christ is to deny the deity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and the power of Christ to save. Once we add to the work of Christ, he no longer is our savior. To add to the gospel is to lose the gospel. Think, think of it like this. If you're thirsty, and I give you this eight ounce cup of purified, clean, amazing water, would you drink it? Yeah, sure, no problem, right? But let's say I just put one drop of poison in it. Would you drink it? To add to the gospel is to, lose to the, is to lose the purity and the power of the gospel. So the Judaizers affirm Jesus, but they do not affirm the Jesus of the Bible. Some of the most deceptive heresies are the ones that use the same words that we do, but with different meanings. You must know that. There are many religions today that, that would hold up either a Bible like this or um, what we would say even is a gospel or a Bible that's been translated wrongly to fit certain ideas that they would have, but they would hold up a Bible that would affirm Jesus Christ, but they are not affirming Christ of the Bible, the one true Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to die for us. So their gospel is a false gospel. It does not lead to the salvation or the glory of God. Any denial of the sufficiency, deity, power, or person of Christ is an affront to God himself, and it is heresy. This is what Paul is writing. And next week, we'll even look more at Paul's words as he calls out anyone that would add to the gospel cursed by God. So we'll look at that more next week. But Paul is now going to come alongside the church that he's planted, and he's going to remind them of the gospel, and he's going to instruct them in the truth of the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so today what we're going to do is just look at four truths of the gospel. In a sense, this is kind of an overview of the whole book of the message of Galatians. So truth number one, the gospel comes to us by the grace of God. In verse 3, Paul begins by saying, grace to you. Now, nine out of Paul's 13 letters all begin this way. This is not 
like writing to whom it may concern on the top of a letter. And it's just this nice way to begin a letter to whom it may concern. Hey, my kid was late for school. Please excuse him. You know, we're, it's not just a, a nice way to start the letter. By saying grace to you, Paul's reminding the church that his letter comes with the authority of God and it is God's grace to this church to build them up, to encourage them, and to instruct them. But even more than that, Paul's reminding the church that the gospel and all the benefits of the gospel come to them by grace. There's nothing we get from God apart from grace. So what is grace? Simple definition, grace is God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. God's goodness given to those who deserve the opposite. Because all of mankind is sinful, every act of God's goodness to man is grace. Praise God. So this is probably a good time then to, to talk a little bit about sin. Uh, we all love talking about sin, right? So let's just define sin. Sin is the rebellion and the rejection of God's glory. Rebellion against his rule, rejection of his glory. Sin rejects the glory of God for the glory of man. What Sin's not just the idea of denying God, but it's actually, I want to replace God with my own throne. I want to be God. I don't want to listen to what he has to say. I want to be the one who determines what is right and what is wrong. And so listen to how Paul describes sin in Romans 8. Now he's going to say the mindset on the flesh, the mindset on the things of man, the things of sin, not the glory of God. So that's what he means when he says flesh. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh, so uh, not on the purposes of God, a sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. He cannot be more clear. Every person is a sinner and there is nothing we can do to please God. In fact, we don't want to please God. And, and really, Paul, the author of this letter, is an amazing example of a sinner saved by grace. In fact, if you look down at verse 13, Paul begins to describe a little bit of his life. And he talks about how he was advancing in Judaism beyond all of his brothers and how he persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy the church of God. Paul was one who arrested Christians killed Christians. He hated Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, we read, he was zealous for the Old Testament law. He was adamant, we must follow the law in order to be saved. And anyone who would say, no, it's by Christ alone, he would attack and kill or imprison. He hated Christ. So I want you to think about it. If someone came to you and said, here's the mission. You need to go share the gospel of good works to people so they can be saved. And you're called to go tell people you need to do enough good things in order to be justified before God. Who would you not go to? Most likely, murderers, those who imprison other people wrongfully, those who stone them, those who hate Jesus. You probably wouldn't say, those are the people I'm looking for. You would, you would look for other people, at least people who look morally good from the outside. 
But that's the good news of the gospel. We're saved by grace. None of us love Jesus. None of us want Jesus. Paul didn't want Jesus. He's literally in Acts chapter 9. We read, riding on the road to Damascus to kill and imprison Christians when, he con- when he's confronted by Christ and is saved. And then he becomes the planter of churches and writes 13 letters in the New Testament. That's why the gospel is by grace. If Paul had to earn or merit his salvation, he has no chance. That's why in verse 15, it says, how was Paul saved? God called him by his grace. Why are you saved? Grace. Why will anyone be saved? Grace. Ephesians 2.8, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Because salvation is by grace and not by works, it does not matter what you have done or what has been done to you. It does not matter about your social, political, or financial status. If you believe in Christ, you are justified, declared righteous by God. You are saved, you are forgiven, and you are adopted into the family of God. That's the beauty of The gospel of grace is not based upon works. It's not based upon your ability or your powers. It's all based upon Christ. Now you might say, okay, that sounds really good, but but you don't know what I've done or you don't know what's been done to me and I have this guilt or I have this shame or I have this pain. How is God going to deal with that? And notice when we come back to verse 3, Paul says, grace to you and peace. The result of the gospel is peace. And this isn't what he's referring to, simply a subjective feeling. You know, you wake up, oh, I feel good today. I wake up tomorrow, I don't feel good today. This isn't a subjective feeling. This is an objective truth declared by God himself. If you believe in Christ, you have peace with God. This is what Romans 5.1 says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is about saving you by grace and giving you his peace that you would no longer have shame or guilt. I hope you know that in Christ, you are forgiven You are given the righteousness of God so that he would see you and say, you are a son of mine. You are a child of mine. Hear this. There is is nothing that you can do in this world that will remove the shame and guilt for things you have done or things that have been done to you except the cross of Jesus Christ. You can try. You can cover things up like a Band-Aid, but nothing will remove them. Nothing will wash you clean except the cross of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is peace alone. Now you might say, okay, this sounds great. God wants to save me by his grace and give me peace. How do I even know that's true? How do I know that God saves me by his grace? How do I know that there's this great peace available? Anyone can stand up and give just this amazing news, but how Do I know it's true? And that brings us to our next point. The gospel is the historical death and resurrection 
of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. It says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Now, we're going to look at different aspects of what it means he gave himself. But the first thing we need to realize is, is Christianity is dependent upon history. Like, there is no historian, Christian, or atheist that denies that 2,000 years ago, there was a man named Jesus who lived for about 30 years and was crucified on a cross. And no historian will deny that the followers of Jesus will testify that he rose from the grave. And on the basis of that, they went and spread the gospel of this risen Christ to the point of their death. No historian will deny that. And Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 15, at a time when this could have been checked very easily, he says there's over 500 witnesses who saw Jesus Christ rise from the grave. The gospel is not found on mystical personal experience that you discover while walking through the woods or hiking on a mountain. It's not about you. We don't find salvation by looking inward. We find salvation by looking to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Like, think about this. Gospel means good news. Therefore, if the gospel has no historical basis, there's no good news to proclaim. What would you proclaim? I had a dream? There has to be something that has happened objectively that's able to be witnessed, identified, and proclaimed. History matters. A gospel void of history is no other, is no gospel. So listen, it's only because of the deceitfulness of sin that we would find more personal comfort in our own personal experience than the historical objective truth that Jesus died and rose again from the grave. So let's come back. So what, what else does it mean that Jesus gave himself? We've already talked about the fact that all of humanity is sinful. We cannot please God. We do not want to please God. The Bible says the penalty of our sin is the eternal fiery wrath of God himself. So we very much see that if we're going to be saved, we would need someone to save us, and that's what Christ comes to do. In fact, in Philippians 2, Paul, in that book, will, will outline what Christ did. He talks about how Jesus sets aside his glory. He leaves heaven. He comes to earth in the flesh, born like you and me, so that one day he would go to the cross and he would die. And we're told that at the cross, Jesus takes our sins and he gives us his righteousness. There's a verse, 2 Corinthians 5.22, or 5.21. Um, some of you are great at memorizing verses. Some of you are not. Regardless of your ability, memorize this verse. Like, there's a lot of verses in the Bible. They're all good. They're all inspired. But memorize this one. It says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be our sin, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus comes that he would take our sin and give us his righteousness. So let me give you two words this morning that we need to know. First word is substitutionary. And that's what we read here in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus comes, he gave himself so that he would stand in your place and in my place at the cross and take 
the punishment you and I deserve. He is our substitute, died in our place. Second word, one that if you've been here at Timberline for a while, you, you know this word. We've talked about it a lot. It starts with a P. Many of you know it, propitiation. At the cross, in our place, Jesus fully absorbs, propitiates the wrath of God. So he absorbs every ounce of God's wrath that you and that I deserve, and he pays for that at the cross so that when we believe in him, we're completely and absolutely forgiven. Not only are our past sins, but present sins and future sins. The wrath of those is fully absorbed in Jesus Christ. In fact, in in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we read this. Paul says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He absorbed God's wrath by his death. That's what it means, by his blood. So when you believe in Christ, you are 100% absolutely, totally, and completely forgiven. Everything that you have done, past, present, and future, paid for at the cross. If you believe in Christ, then you will never experience the wrath of God. So, Which means the difficulties in life are never God's wrath upon you. So his discipline is a way of, just as parents discipline their children, that they would grow into obedience. So God will do that to us, that we would grow in obedience and conformity to his son. But we will never experience even one drop of God's wrath. Because at the cross, Jesus as our substitute, fully propitiated, absorbed God's wrath for us. That's what happens at the cross. Now, there are some people, perhaps you've heard this, perhaps you've thought this before, they're outraged at the idea that Jesus would come and die for us at the cross. They say that that's cosmic child abuse. No father here on earth would ever send their son willingly to go die on a cross for someone. So how could the divine father send his son to do that? How could one force their son to go and die such an excruciating death? Well, we need to go back and look at those words in verse four. Jesus gave himself. So in the Bible, we we see that God is Father, Son, Spirit. There's a trinity. One person, one God, three persons. We're not going to unpack that today, but but Jesus didn't get the short end of the straw when they're saying, who's going to go to the cross? Jesus didn't lose a bet. Jesus wasn't kicked out of heaven by the Father saying, you're going to go do this, and Jesus comes down kicking and screaming. But when it says he gave himself, it emphasizes the freedom of Christ's sacrifice. Out of his love for God, out of his love for you, he willingly, voluntarily, deliberately, joyfully, and intentionally came to die on the cross for our sins. The only way we are saved from our sins is the cross of of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. So rather than be outraged at the cross, perhaps we should be outraged at our own sin. The cross shows not only the love and power of God to save, but it shows the extreme offensiveness of our sin to God. And according to God's word, if our sins are so offensive to God that our salvation is dependent upon the death of the Son of God, then it would certainly be most foolish for us to trust in our pitiful works 
to save us. Why would we do that? So, so far what we've seen is that the gospel comes to us by grace through Jesus Christ at the cross. Jesus comes in our place as our substitute to absorb the full wrath of God that we should be forgiven. But there's more to see in verse 4. What does it mean in verse 4 when it says that he delivers us from the present evil age? So that brings us to our next point. The gospel brings us into the kingdom of God. The gospel is not only about the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is about bringing us to a place, to God's kingdom. Now perhaps, um, well, when we read that we're saved from this present evil age, the Bible speaks about two ages or, or two worlds or what might be more familiar to is a two-kingdom idea. There's the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of Satan, and then there's the kingdom of God. So, so let me explain. Do you remember back in Genesis 3, there's Adam and Eve, and they're in the garden. The garden represented God's kingdom. It's God's people in God's place, in his presence, and they're experiencing the blessing of God's rule. But do you remember what happened when they sinned? They're removed from the garden, and an angel stands there. There's no entrance back into the kingdom of God, back into the place where God's blessing and his presence is experienced. And so what we understand then is that man is cast out because of their sin into the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. And it's that which Paul refers to, this present evil age, the kingdom of this world. And it's in this realm, it's in this world that we reject God and that we rebel against God. It's in this kingdom that there is hatred and anger and murder, strife, gossip, slander, divorce, sexual immorality, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, war, and so much other evil. See, in, in this present evil age, in the kingdom of darkness, in the kingdom of this world, we're living life apart from God. But salvation is about God rescuing us as sinners who live as enemies of God, transforming us that not only would we become sons of God, but saints of God and citizens within the very kingdom of God, bringing us back into his kingdom that we would dwell in his presence. That's why it says we're delivered from the present evil age. That word deliver, it's a strong word. It means Jesus rescues us from the bondage and slavery of sin. It means that Jesus did absolutely everything we need in order to be saved and brought back into the presence of God. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. Imagine, imagine going to work and working for 40 hours and then you get your paycheck and you come home and your son says, I'm now gonna go work outside, dad, and do some chores so you get your money. You've already worked and you've done it. The son can do nothing to add to the work that you've done. You've already received the paycheck. Christ has done everything we need to be delivered from the kingdom of this world. There's nothing you and I can add to it. In fact, to think that we can add to it is to belittle the work that Christ has already done. This is what we read in Colossians 1, verse 13 and 14. Look at how Paul talks about the present evil age. He says, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the present evil age, and transferred us 
to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, the gospel is about God rescuing people and bringing them into his presence. It's a rescue mission. We're citizens of this age, enemies of God. Jesus comes, rescues us, brings us out so we can then be citizens of the kingdom of God and enjoy his presence forever. We needed someone to save us. Jesus comes and storms the walls of the kingdom of darkness and rescues us and brings us into the kingdom of God. You see, the gospel is about Jesus doing everything by grace necessary so that we would spend eternity with God in maximum joy. That's the point. That's the goal of the gospel. So if we're Christians and we've been rescued from the present evil age, then why do we still live here on earth, right? Is that still strange? Why, why do we live here on earth if we're citizens somewhere else? Well, well, think of it like an ambassador. They are a citizen of a, another country, but they live on, on foreign soil. But they have, but as, as Christians, we have, we have different passport. We have heavenly papers. We've been sealed by the Spirit of God that says we are not citizens of this world. So we live here. But the promise is, is that when Christ returns, he brings forth a new heavens and new earth, which we will dwell with him for all of eternity and all who have believed and trusted in Christ and experience his blessing and his presence for eternity. That's the future of every believer. Eternity with God. Maximum joy. Maximum peace. All by God's grace. Now some have questioned Okay. Was this always the plan, though? Like, did God know this was going to happen? Did God plan for this to happen? What happened in the garden? Did, was God hoping that Adam and Eve would never sin? Was, was the cross like plan B or C or D or E or just keep going? Was the cross an accident? Did Jesus come hoping that when he preached the kingdom, there would be a great revival at that moment and the kingdom of God would come in and he wouldn't have to die? If we come to our last point, it says the gospel is the eternal plan of God for the everlasting glory of God. Look at, look at where verse four is. So verse four is talking about Jesus came to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So the, the cross was not plan B, C, D, E, Z, or anything else. It's from the beginning of time that we understand God decided that he would save a people who would worship him through the cross of Jesus Christ. And this truth permeates all of Scripture. All of Scripture. We see there's a trajectory towards the cross. In fact, um, let me give three examples. Number one, in the book um, of Isaiah in the Old Testament, this is what we read in Isaiah 53, 5. It says, he, this is talking about Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And then in verse 10, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So we're saved by this servant who's going to come and suffer on behalf of others. And whose will was it? 
God's will. Jesus himself, second example, in the Gospels will speak repeatedly about the mission of going to the cross. Um, for example, in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem and goes, let's see what happens. Maybe they'll listen. They didn't listen to any of the prophets. Maybe if I come, they'll all listen finally. No, he went on a mission. The mission was the cross. Number three, in Acts chapter two, and this, is, this one's really helpful. Peter, he stands up and he gives this amazing sermon. 3,000 people come to faith this day and are baptized, but listen how he talks about the cross. So he, he looks at the Jews who surround him and he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So who killed Jesus? There's two ways you can answer that. Well, the Jews did, the, the lawless men did of that time. They killed Jesus. But, but who ultimately killed Jesus? Who ultimately stood behind the cross of Jesus Christ? Well, to come back to our text, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The cross wasn't an accident. The cross wasn't plan B, plan C. It's always been the plan. It's the definite plan of God. So here's the point. God's not waiting up in heaven for you and I to figure out, how do I atone for my sins? How do I get saved? He's not hoping that we will miraculously open up our eyes, or our sinful eyes, that, that according to Scripture, we don't want God, we don't want to please God, and hopefully we fix ourselves, and all of a sudden, I do want God. But rather, what we see is that God, out of his great love, sends his son to earth, that he would die for us, in our place, paying the price for our sins, so we could be saved, forgiven, and brought from the kingdom of darkness into his presence for all of eternity. The cross of Jesus shows us just how perilous our sinful condition was and the cost it took for us to be forgiven. But you might say, but, but why the cross? Did it have to be the cross? Have you ever wondered that? Couldn't there have been another way I actually think that's a really dangerous question. I think it's an arrogant question. And here's why I think so. Because we're thinking with our finite minds, would there have been a better way to pay for our sins than what the infinitely wise and glorious God came up with? So that's where I think, I think it's a dangerous question and an arrogant question to start saying, would there have been another way? But according to scripture, we see that God, from before all of eternity, has designed creation that we would be saved through the cross of Jesus Christ. Here, I think, is a better question. How could a supremely glorious God display his infinite perfections so he would have a people worship him for all of eternity? Now, just so you know, it's not prideful for God to desire glory. To be God 
is to be infinitely and fully glorious. So who else would he glorify? Who else would he glory in? You? Me? Like that would be strange, right? To be God is to be worthy of all glory and honor and praise. So, so for his creation to be the, for the purpose of his glory, that's what it is to be God. So there's not a pride in that. So how is it then that God could display his wisdom, his knowledge and beauty and power and justice and grace and wrath, mercy, righteousness, justice and love? How is it that he would do that and purchase a people who would worship him for all of eternity for the magnificence of his glory? The cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross, we see the glory of God. We see the love of God, the wrath of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the beauty of God. The cross of Christ reveals the glory of God. This is why Paul, in the very beginning of this book, on we are justified by faith in Christ, all by his grace, he, he can't even get through his introduction without saying, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Bookend number one. Bookend number two, switch to the end of the book, Galatians 6.14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom the world was crucified. It's all about the cross. Beginning, bookend number one, glorify God. Bookend number two, glorify God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the cross to save people by grace. He died in our place. He paid the price for our sins. He absorbed God's wrath for us. He died so we'd be rescued from the kingdom of darkness, brought into the kingdom of God, experienced God's perfect blessing for all of eternity. He died so you and I would have unending joy in the infinitely glorious God and praise him for all eternity. That's the gospel. That's what happens at the cross. Let me give you one more passage. I think this passage kind of puts it all together. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Notice how Paul begins this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That includes salvation, everything. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, Before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God, in past of eternity, has decided that he will purchase a people through Christ. He doesn't specifically say the words cross, but if it's going to be through Christ, it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the point of the New Testament. So Paul in Ephesians goes back earlier than the book of Genesis. So just so you know, if you want the book of beginnings, you got to start in Ephesians, not Genesis. Because Paul looks farther back than Genesis does and says, God chose a people that one day would be purchased through Jesus Christ. That we would be with them for all of eternity. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. Same thing he says here in verse 5. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week we talked a lot about the difference between a man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. Man-centered gospels are about your glory. 
The thing is, they don't work. They fail. They don't deliver. But here's the beautiful thing. A God-centered gospel not only glorifies God, but it maximizes our joy in him because it brings us into his presence. In Christ, Jesus has done everything to take care of our sins and to take us from the kingdom of darkness and bring us into the presence of God. That's the gospel. We reject it because of our sin, but because of God's grace, we're saved, forgiven, adopted into the family of God, given his righteousness, given the very peace of God, so we would live forever with him. I hope that gives a better understanding of the gospel. I hope you see why forgiveness of sins and eternal life only comes by grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So then the question then that we all ought to ask at the end of this is, is, do I know Christ? Have I trusted in this Jesus? And why would I trust in, in myself or anything else when, when this salvation is freely offered to us by God through the grace of cross of Jesus Christ? And if you're a believer, I hope you've been reminded and encouraged that because of Jesus, you are saved to enjoy God now and forever. That's the good news. He saves us for all of eternity to be, to be in the presence of God. There is no other gospel. Salvation is found by grace alone in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Let me pray. Our Father, Our Father, we, we come to you again in the name of Christ. And Lord, we, we just ask for your forgiveness. We ask forgiveness from our sins and from trying to live life apart from you. And God, we praise you that you have provided a way for us to be forgiven. And it is solely dependent upon your grace in Jesus. Your son, Jesus, does everything we need to be saved. God, help us to know that truth and convict us of anything that we would trust in apart from Jesus Christ. God, may we not trust in any part of creation. May we not trust in our minds, in our power, in our strength, in our abilities, in our creative creativity, in anything in this world. But may we trust in the grace of your son, Jesus Christ, at the death and resurrection of the cross alone. God, we thank you that according to your word, you save us for your glory and our joy. And our joy is found in your glory. So God, may we know that. May we repent of ever looking for joy and satisfaction and meaning in anything else but your son, Jesus. It's all sinful. It's all idolatry. And you have sent your son to die on a cross, which can be witnessed, which can be verified, that we would know, that we would see your love and your grace. God, I pray for every person here that we would know you, that we would trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Open up our eyes today that we would trust in nothing but your son, Jesus, knowing that he has delivered us 
from this present evil age, knowing that he gave himself to be our substitute and our propitious offering, that he has satisfied your wrath, and in him we are forgiven. God, may we all have that confidence, and may we experience the peace which you declare we have because of your son. And Lord, as we partake of communion now, Lord, specifically just looking at what your son did at the cross, God, fill us with joy. Fill us with a serious joy, a joy that comes because of what your son has done and saved us by his grace. In your name, Jesus, amen.